The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And uh, what we do once a year here is a question and answer time. And this is kind of an opportunity for us just to be a family together and to interact over whatever's on your heart and your mind. And so if you're new with us today, uh, you're still welcome to participate in this. This is a a great time. It's a little different than uh, preaching a sermon. It's an opportunity for us to deal with the issues that you're thinking about, the questions that you have, and to to just interact together. So over the last few weeks, you've been submitting questions, and I have those, and uh, we'll work through a few of those together. And then uh, we're also going to have a couple microphones in the back if you would like to uh, just ask a question, a follow-up question to something that was asked in the, one of these written questions, or if, if that spurs another question you have, uh, whatever, just uh, raise your hand and uh, we'll make sure that one of the guys in the back uh, brings you a microphone so everyone can hear your questions. So that's the, the game plan for the next uh, 45 minutes, 50 minutes or so. Uh, so uh, here we go. All right, this is family time, Maranatha, interact with me, this is not a sermon. So here's some of the questions that, that you've asked over the last few weeks, and I'll, I'll maybe do two or three of them and then stop and see if you uh, have some interaction that you'd like to have over that. So the first question is Galatians three twenty eight and 29. Does this mean that we have all the promises of the Old Testament, for example, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? is that promise for us as well. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Galatians 3, 28 and 29. And let me just reference the verse that's being asked in this question. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And I'm assuming the question relates to that last phrase there, heirs according to promise. Is that that a phrase that means that if we're Abraham's children, then all of the promises of the Old Testament are for us today as well, Uh, and specifically Jeremiah 29, 11, and probably many others as well. It's a good question because it's a question that relates to hermeneutics, interpretation, and dispensationalism. How's that? Yeah. So here's the question. The question is, because Paul says here that we're Abraham's offspring and we are then heirs according to the promise, are the promises in the Old Testament for us today in the church? Let me give you a short answer. Write this down. No. No. Uh, And let me explain why. Let's first of all understand why Paul wrote Galatians. Paul wrote Galatians to deal with the issue of those who were trying to add to the gospel. That's what Galatians is about. Paul is defending justification by faith alone in the book of Galatians. There were some false teachers there, Judaizers, who were adding to the gospel. They were saying that in order to be saved, you must not only believe in Christ, you must also uh, do the works of the Mosaic law. And so Paul hears about this, and he's obviously very concerned about this because they were undermining, these false teachers were, the central doctrine of the New Testament known as justification by faith alone. And so he's very concerned, and so he's writing about this, and he's seeking to defend that doctrine, and he's urging them to abandon any addition of works 
to the gospel. It's in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, that anyone is saved, period. Okay, so that's what Paul's doing here. When he comes to verses 28 and 29, he's describing how justification by faith alone works, and he's giving some changes that come as a result of this doctrine in a believer's life. And what he tells us in verses 26 and 27, for instance, is that you become sons of God. And then verse 28, he says that you also become one in Christ. And so what he's talking about here is that if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that and that alone is sufficient to make you one in Christ with all other believers. All human distinctions are gone. That's what verse 28 is about. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. uh, There's neither Jew nor Greek. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That's one of the benefits of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Another benefit of that, or another change that comes as a result of that is verse 29, you become Abraham's offspring. So the joy that we have as believers in the New Testament, in the church, is that we get to be adopted as Abraham's children through the new covenant, which puts us into the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So how do we get the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant? How do we get to be blessed along with Abraham and the believing remnant of Israel? It's through justification by faith alone. It's simply by believing in Christ that puts us into those blessings. Now, the question was, does that mean that we then, by, uh, by consequence, receive all the benefits and all the promises of the Old Testament as well? The answer is no. This verse is not teaching that the church replaces Israel. That's the dispensational component of this question. We as the church today are not Israel. We're not a new Israel. We're not the replacement for Israel. Israel still has a future in God's economy, and the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant that God promised to Abraham are still future to the nation of Israel, at least the believing remnant, which will take place after Christ returns at the second coming. So this is not a promise to us as the church today, that all the promises of the Old Testament are for us specifically. He's talking specifically here about the benefits of being blessed in Abraham through salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, Jeremiah 29, 11, go to that verse, because the question follows up and says, what about Jeremiah 29, 11? Now, I think I've talked about this before. I don't want to burst your bubble. Uh, if this is your favorite verse in the Old Testament, it's okay. It can still be your favorite verse in the Old Testament it's just not written to you, okay? It's not written to you. There's truths that you can pull from it, but it's not written to you. It's written to Israel. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Now, that's a great verse. We love the truths in that verse because it talks about how God loves his people, how there's hope for his people, how there's a future for his people. And many today want to, in a sense, claim that verse and say, this is God's verse to me. The problem is it's not to you. <laughs> it's written to Israel. This is a letter written by Jeremiah to the exiles in uh, Babylon, and he's giving them hope in the midst of their exile that it's not hopeless, that there's still a future for them, that they're going to be brought back from exile, and they're going to be God's people again someday, and that is still future for the believing remnant of Israel. That's going to take place sometime in the future when Christ returns and establishes his program with the nation of Israel again. So this is a promise to the nation of Israel in their future restoration. It took place partly when they came out of exile, and it will take place fully when they as a nation, the believing remnant, are restored uh, in the millennium after the second coming. So 
this highlights the danger of just taking verses and saying, well, I want that verse because it sounds good. Well, why don't you take verses 17 and 18 as well? It says, the Lord of hosts says, behold, I'm sending upon them the sword, the famine, pestilence, and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. And I will pursue them with a sword, with famine, with pestilence, and I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Put that on your wall. Make that your favorite verse. Why don't we claim that verse? Why don't we like that verse? Because it doesn't talk about the hopeful things that we want it to say, but it's in the context of verse 11. And so you can't just take that verse out and say, well, I want the hope of that verse without taking the truth of that verse as well, verses 17 and 18. That's all for Israel. It's all speaking about God's plans and purposes for them as a nation. So can you draw some truths from this verse, verse 11? Well, sure. God loves his people, and God has a a plan for his people in general, and and those who are his have a glorious future. So you can draw some general principles from the verse. That's why I said you can still have it as your favorite verse. It's just not written in the context to the church. It's written to the nation of Israel. So here's where interpretation first must govern your application, and you must follow that order. You can't just rush to application. I'm going to claim that verse. No, you have to... You have to run first to interpretation and understand it in its context before you run to application. Okay? Make sense? Okay. Question number two. If it doesn't, ask another elder. Uh, They can help you. Number two. Question number two. How unified should we be with those who are within the universal church but with whom we disagree on some issues such as charismatics, paedo-baptists, etc.? The question here is related to unity and how united should we be with fellow believers who are of a different theological ilk or theological conviction, maybe charismatics or reformed uh, people who baptize infants, sprinkle infants. What about those? To what degree are we to be unified and to what degree should we seek that unity? I want to answer that question by dealing with it on an individual level and then by dealing with it on a corporate level. Individually, if you have fellowship or a relationship with a fellow believer who's charismatic or Reformed or Presbyterian or a Pado baptist you can have great fellowship with them, and you should. They're fellow believers, so enjoy that fellowship. Even if you have different doctrinal convictions and if you land in different places on some of those issues, you can still have fellowship with those believers individually. Uh, and that's where I think some of these texts, like Philippians 1.27 says, whether I come and see you or remain absent, Paul says, I will hear of you standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If you preach the same gospel, I, I think you can individually have some wonderful fellowship with believers who are of a different, somewhat theological persuasion. Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. It doesn't say be devoted to only those who think exactly like you theologically. It says be devoted to one another, fellow believers. So individually, I believe you can and should have good fellowship with believers who may have a different theological conviction on certain issues. I've told you before that I have a great respect for our Reformed brothers. Uh, I believe that in many cases they preach the same gospel. 
Now, we're going to land differently on the issue of baptism. We're not going to sprinkle infants. We don't believe that Scripture teaches that. So we're going to differ on that conviction, but we have great fellowship. I've told you before, I've uh, spent a lot of time or some time with Kevin DeYoung, who's a Reformed pastor in East Lansing. Great fellowship with him. Dr. Beakey here in town, uh, I've had lunch with him. Great fellowship with him. I've appreciated Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, and the things I've learned from him. They, they have a different theological conviction, particularly when it comes to the covenants and covenantal theology and sprinkling infants, but they're brothers in the Lord. So you should have fellowship with them. Now, the question following up to that is, what about corporately? To what degree can we have corporate fellowship with those who have different theological convictions? And that becomes a little bit more difficult because the greater the theological differences, the more difficult it becomes to partner in ministry and actually do things together. And that's not always a bad thing. It's just the nature of, of where it's at. So it's actually difficult to partner with those in ministry who may have different theological convictions. Now, let me cite an article which I believe may be very helpful to you if you want to know more about this. Uh, Dr. Moeller has written, Albert Moeller has written an article called A Call for Theological Triage and Christian Maturity. Very helpful article. And in it, he describes different orders of theological issues, a first, second, and third order of theological issues. He says that first level or first order theological issues are those doctrines that are most essential and central to the Christian faith, like the Trinity, like the deity of Christ, like the humanity of Christ, like justification by faith, and like the authority of Scripture. These are first order theological issues. And in order to be a believer, you have to agree to those issues. So if you deny one or any of those issues, you can't be saved. So that's where we have to start. First order theological issues are the most essential to the Christian faith. Now, what about second order theological issues? Those are issues where we may disagree on them, although this disagreement will cause significant boundaries, will cause significant uh, inability to partner together, like baptism. We, We could not have a Presbyterian on our staff here. We just couldn't. Because we're going to have different convictions about how to do baptism. And I couldn't go to a Presbyterian church and be on staff there because our convictions about baptism are then going to begin to affect our practice. So that's going to prevent us from having the type of denominational unity that will enable us to to kind of partner together and and do ministry together like that. It will, in a sense, prevent fellowship uh, within that that relationship. And then there's third-order theological issues. And this is, these are issues where you can disagree and still remain in the same church. So first order are essential to being a believer. Second order are theological issues where you could disagree or will disagree, but it's going to keep you from partnering in ministry. And then there's third order theological issues where you can be in the same church and have different positions. Many of those would be eschatology issues, like end times, like are you pre-trib or post-trib? Uh, if you're here today and you hold to a post-trib rapture, you can still be a member here. You can. And we'd welcome you here. Uh, that's not going to keep you from fellowship. But if you hold to believer's baptism as we do here, uh, you're going to have to go to a church where you believe in, which believes in believer's baptism, not a, a Reformed or a Presbyterian church. So I hope that's somewhat helpful. That's not always a bad thing. That's, I don't think denominations are always sinful and they're not... not not always a bad thing. It's just the way that the church has 
kind of grown and it's going to keep us from uh, joining hands in some cases, but individually we can still have good fellowship uh, together. Okay? hope that answers that question. Let me do one more short one and then I'll stop and see if you have some follow-up questions. This question is related to Acts 19 verses 1 to 7. So go in your Bibles to Acts 19. 1 to 7. And the question is, in Acts 19, 1 to 7, how um, come the 12 described here did not receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, upon belief? Let me just read this text. Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in about, in all, about 12 men. So here's the question. The question is, why did these men, if they're believers, disciples, why did they not receive the Holy Spirit until Paul came and ministered to them? It's a great question. Here's the answer. The answer is, this is a transitional book. Acts is a transitional book from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And so what you have in the book of Acts are a few instances where there's some people who are kind of caught <laughs> in between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And they find themselves in this transitional period recorded in the book of Acts uh, between these two covenants, between, in the sense, the two, two, two testaments. And so what's happened here is you have a group of men, 12, who were disciples of John the Baptist. And they had been baptized with a baptism of repentance. That's what verse 4 says, John baptized with a baptism of repentance. So they were Old Testament believers. They were Old Testament saints. They had heard that they needed to repent of sin. They understood that John the Baptist was preaching that message. They came and they understood that they needed to be baptized to demonstrate their awareness of their need for forgiveness. And so they were baptized in accordance with their desire to repent of their sin and give demonstration of that. It's different than believer's baptism. It's different than being a Christian, a New Testament Christian. Um, And so... They were before the time, in a sense, when the gospel was proclaimed. Now, the gospel had already been proclaimed. Christ has already been crucified. They hadn't heard about it yet. They didn't know, and they didn't understand all that was coming in Christ. That's what verse 4 says, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him. That is in Jesus. So they needed more revelation to understand what it meant and how to become a Christian, a New Testament Christian. So these disciples are not yet Christians. They're Old Testament saints. So the reason they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet is because they're still under that Old Testament, Old Covenant dispensation. So Paul comes along, uh, and we know that, by the way, because they haven't received the Holy Spirit. Every person who's a Christian has received the Holy Spirit. If you haven't received the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. So these men have not received the Holy Spirit. They're not New Testament saints. So Paul comes along, and he preaches to them, Uh, The gospel, he preaches them the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ. They are then baptized by believer's baptism in the name of the Lord, Jesus, verse 5. And because of that, then they receive the Holy Spirit. 
This is not normative. Okay, this is not how it normally, this is not how it works today. It's how it worked in the book of Acts for a few select individuals who were caught between the two covenants. This is not how it works today. You don't get saved and then sometime later get the Spirit. That's where charismatic theology is a misunderstanding of this text. Okay? Uh, you don't get saved and then get the second blessing of the Spirit someday later. That's a wrong understanding of this text. So the, it has to be understood in its context in the fact that this is a transitional book. So I hope that helps that answer that question. All right, let me stop. Tim has a question way in the back. So Dave, would you mind, or Todd, whoever has the microphone, just bring it back there. We want you to use the mic so everyone can hear, especially down in the overflow as well. So, And if you have other questions related to these, feel free to bring those up too. You don't have to ask follow-up questions to these. Tim, go ahead. Say it again. Christian. Yeah, they were disciples of John the Baptist. Oh, okay. So the reference in verse 4 says, John baptized with a baptism of repentance. They were uh, disciples, followers of John the Baptist. Yep. Good Thank question, you. Tim. Bethany, right here. That's a great question. Don't we all have that issue? Yeah, 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon is uh, given by the Lord uh, wisdom. He could have asked for riches. He could have asked for many other things, prestige, but he asked for wisdom. And the problem is, as Solomon's life unfolds, certainly uh, towards the latter part of his life, he's not a man who's walking with the Lord and the wisdom that he's been given, uh, especially because we can see that in the fact that he had many wives, concubines, he accumulated riches, which Deuteronomy 17 uh, prohibits kings from doing, and uh, he uh, just sought to make a name for himself. And I think what you have in Solomon is an example of what happens to many believers, unfortunately. They start well. Um, they get excited about the things of the Lord when they're young, they live for the Lord when they're young, and then the pressures of the world, the temptations of the world, the allurement of the world uh, begins to take hold of your life. And Solomon's not the only one to have this happen to. You can follow the pattern of many people who have... Uh, begun well and not finished well. Um, so I think Solomon stands as an example to us of the dangers of spiritual erosion. Um, if we're not careful, the same thing can happen to us. If we let the cares of the world, if we get money, if we let prestige, if we let adultery, those kinds of worldly things take root in our heart, those things have a way of steadily eroding our trust in the Lord, our love for the Lord, our affection for the Lord. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6? You cannot serve God in mammon. You can't serve God in money. And so his life really is a testimony to 
You may be blessed with wisdom. You may be blessed with a great knowledge of the word. You may be blessed with a spiritual heritage. You may be blessed with godly parents, but it is not a guarantee that you're going to finish well in life. And so I I would see Solomon as an admonition to us um, to stay close to the Lord, um, to not let the allurements of the world captivate our affections. The good thing about Solomon is I believe he came back to the Lord. So if you read Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is kind of his uh, description of his life when he abandoned the Lord. Proverbs is his life as a young man. Ecclesiastes is his life as an old man. And he describes, remember when we preached through Ecclesiastes, uh, he, he describes what it's like to live apart from the Lord. And the good thing about him is that towards the end, chapter 12, says the conclusion of all these things is to fear the Lord. So I believe at the end of his life, he came back to the Lord. And I believe he began to fear the Lord, you know, towards the end. Uh, but we don't have to live that way. We, we shouldn't live that way. We should live in the fear of the Lord uh, every day for the, the, the duration of our life. Um, that's a great question. Um, that's, a, that's a good example of studying men and women in the Scriptures, to let them be an example and a testimony to us. Yeah, Rosie, question? I have a follow-up on the second question about fellowship among different denominations. Um, God's made his position really, really clear on false teachers. Is it only those first-order issues that we should consider differences on as false teaching, or are there any second-order issues that we should feel that way with? So what's the difference between a second-order issue and false teaching? Is that what you're asking? Well, because you said that there were different, like, orders of issue. Like, with the second order, we can still fellowship with them, but not corporately. Correct. Um, Where do we sort of draw that line? Is it just the first-order issues where a difference would make the person a false teacher? Well, I I think on on these first, second, and third-order issues, I wouldn't see any false teaching in those issues. So, we use uh, baptism as an example. Uh, That's not a false teaching. Um, You have godly men on both sides of that issue. You have godly men who espouse uh, believer's baptism, and you have godly men who hold to sprinkling infants. And I don't think in that case it's a false doctrine. Now, I think they're wrong, (laughs) okay? I think they're wrong, but I don't think it's a false doctrine. And so I think we have to distinguish between what's a false doctrine and what's maybe just a misunderstanding of Scripture that comes not from a heart to deceive. And so that, that takes some ferreting out what those issues are. Uh, maybe the sign gifts might be another example. I, I'm firmly convinced the sign gifts have ceased. But there are godly men and women who are not to that conviction, they believe that there's still some operation of the sign gifts today, miracles, uh, tongues, healings. Now, by the way, I believe God does miracles today. I'm not saying he doesn't. But the gifts given to people, I believe the gifts have ceased. So there's godly men and women on both sides of that issue. And I I don't think that that's necessarily a, a doctrine of false teaching, although it could bleed into false teaching if 
the tongues and the experience of tongues and the seeking of miracles and the casting out of demons, if that becomes your dominant theology through which you view all of Scripture, then that can lead to false teaching. So I think that's where some maturity and some discernment in ferreting out what's just a kind of a different approach to that text versus what's an actual false doctrine. I think you have to put those issues in those various categories. Dale, question in the back. Uh, to further clarify at Rosie's, if I may, the false teachers would come primarily in those first order doctrines where they would say the Trinity doesn't exist, Yes. where Jesus Christ was not God's son, he was yes. a God, not the God. Yes. Um, those kind of issues, first order doctrines, are primarily where you're going to see false teachers come into play. Yeah, you're not going to see false teaching most likely in second and third order doctrines. It'll be in the first order doctrines, which will be denials of orthodox Christianity. And then if, those, if there are those denying that, then the book of Jude and the book of Second Peter are very clear. You confront that. That is not to be anywhere in the church. And so those issues are to be confronted boldly, clearly, without any equivocation, because those are first-order doctrines. And if that finds root or gains root or gains a hold in a church, that will devastate a church. So that's why the, the um, elders in Acts 20 are called to be vigilant in protecting the church from wolves that could sow seeds uh, of uh, false doctrine, which, as Dale says, would come in the first order. Great clarification. Uh, question right here, Jim. Paul um, was preaching the, the baptism of John. He was considered one of the greatest preachers possibly that ever lived, and yet he was preaching a doctrine that was not true. He, and he was innocent about it. He didn't know the, the difference. Right. Just like the, the one you started with today. Um, he didn't know the difference. He was stuck between the two covenant ideas. I exactly. Think, just like that. But anyway, he did have to be corrected. And if he had to be corrected, that meant his doctrine was wrong or false, which it was. Correct. And so he needed to dump that, which he did. Yes. And it was over with. He went on preaching the truth. Exactly. You know? So, And we're all full of some false doctrine at some time. Exactly. Not full of it, but we have some of it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we have some of it. All exactly. Of it, I think. Anyway, I, could, I couldn't prove that, but I've had some. I know that. Yes. That's a great point, Jim. You know, I, I'm sure there are areas in my theology that are wrong. I just don't know where they are. Right? I mean, the more I study the Scriptures, I think I'm kind of closing the net, closing the gaps in the net. I'm sure there's some areas somewhere where I don't think totally right. I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived yet. I'm still learning, as we all are. And that's the heart of someone who's, who's a true believer. They're teachable, right? They're still learning. They're still growing. They're still maturing. Uh, as opposed to the heart of a false teacher is to deceive, distort, distort uh, preach for money. So there's a heart issue that goes into those things. And the heart of a true believer is always, Lord, teach me. Lord, grow me. Lord, mature me. Uh, great, great, great question. All right. Let me do a few more, and we'll see if you have some questions on this. Uh, next question, is hell a literal or figurative place? Is hell a literal or figurative place? Let me begin by answering that by saying that I don't like talking about hell. 
Because if I understand what the scriptures teach about this issue, it scares me to death. That what hell is, is really like. Um, in fact, if, if I think too much about what the scriptures teach about hell, I almost get physically sick. Because I can't imagine physical, actual, literal suffering for eternity. But that's what the scriptures teach. Um, hell is a real place. So the answer to the question, is it literal or figurative? It's literal. It's a real place. Uh, but that's not always the view. And so I appreciate the question. Uh, Pope John Paul II in 1999 said, rather than a place, hell indicates the state of those who freely and definitively separate themselves from God. The Pope denied that hell is a literal place. As did Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins, he says, hell is a word to describe the very real consequences we experience when we reject the good and true and beautiful life God has for us. So these are understandings of hell that uh, would view it as an, a figurative place. Hell is just whatever bad happens in your life when you don't live the good life that God wants you to live. And that's not what Scripture teaches. Hell is a literal place. Let me give you some examples of this. Uh, hell is described in Scripture as a place that is down. It's down. You say, where is hell? I don't know where it is. It's just down. It doesn't mean it's under the earth. It doesn't mean it's below our feet. It's just down. You say, well, where is down? I don't know. It's just in a different realm. It's a spiritual realm that's down. And Scripture says, Job 17, will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Romans 10, 7, who will descend into the abyss? Isaiah 14, you are brought down to Sheol. Luke 10, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. So hell is described as a literal location which is down, as opposed to heaven, which is described in Scripture as being up. So 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. So heaven is up, hell is down. <laughs> that doesn't really help us determine where it is. I don't know if it's actually a physical location, but it is a real, literal place. It's described as Sheol in the Old Testament. It's described as Hades in the New Testament. It's described as Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom in the New Testament. It's called the Abyss. It's called Tartarus in 2 Peter 2. And the eternal hell is the lake of fire described in Revelation 20 and Revelation 21. It's a real place. Jesus described it in Mark chapter 9 as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he described it in Matthew chapter 8 verse 12 as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says in the kingdom or the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place. It's a real place. Now, are there literal worms in hell that never die? I don't know about that. Are there literal flames that lick at people's feet in hell? I don't know about that. I believe, in many cases, the writers of Scripture are testing the limits of human language to try to explain the horrors of hell. 
And so is there, are there worms? Is there fire? Those may be figurative expressions of the physical suffering that takes place in hell. So I can't tell you for sure there's fire and worms in hell, but I can tell you it's far worse than any of those physical uh, descriptions can convey. Because I don't think human language can convey the horrors of hell. Let me give you one example, Luke chapter 16. Maybe you could just turn there real quick. Uh, to again explain that this is a real place. Luke chapter 16 gives us an illustration of this, and really the only conclusion you can draw from this is that hell is a real place. Uh, Luke 16 verse 19, there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away into the angels or by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now watch this. And in Hades... He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. There's two men. A godly man dies, goes, and ascends to Abraham's bosom, which is a description of heaven. And then the rich man dies and he descends into Hades, where he's clearly in agony by his own testimony. So it's a real place. It's not just figurative. Uh, there's no such thing as purgatory. Um, there's no such thing as annihilationism, which, by the way, I wish there was. I'd rather there be annihilationism than hell. Because in annihilationism, you just go out of existence. You just cease to exist, which would be far better than eternity in hell suffering forever. But that's not what Scripture teaches Scripture is very clear that it's a real place, it's a conscious place, it's a separated place, it's an agonizing place, and it's an eternal place. So hopefully that answers your question. And ultimately, that should drive you to the gospel. If you don't know Christ, that should drive you to Christ as the only one who can rescue you from the suffering in hell because it's the destiny for all who reject Christ. So embrace Christ, receive his forgiveness, and that will not be your future. Let me give you another question, and then maybe we'll stop again. A practical question this time, not just a theological question. I'm curious, why do we not have an American and Christian flag at the front of our auditorium? Good question. Um, I would answer it by this way, saying it's not a hill I would die on. So if there's a consensus that we need an American flag in our church, okay, I could live with that. Um, I'm fine with that, actually. Um, there's uh, a sense in which the American flag uh, communicates um, a respect for our nation, uh, a love for our country, um, uh, a respect for those men and women who have died and given their lives for our country. Uh, so if that's why the flag would be here, I'm, I'd be all for it. Uh, I'd be all for it to, to say, absolutely, let's have a flag because it helps us remember uh, the, the men and women who've sacrificed. It gives us a deep love for our country. Uh, listen, I'm the most patriotic guy there is. I love our country. I love the flag uh, and what it represents. Uh, maybe nine years in the military wearing the flag 
every day on my left arm had something to do with that. I mean, I, I can't get through the Star-Spangled Banner without crying, you know? And I can't, that's that, what's that song? Um, Proud to be an American. Don't even play that. Just, <laughs> just don't even play it. I'd be a mess on the floor. I mean, I love our country. So I, I'd be fine putting a flag in our church for those reasons. Um, but that doesn't, it isn't what always the flag represents to certain people. If you've been watching the news the last two days, the quarterback of the 49ers is on the sidelines when the Star-Spangled Banner, the national anthem, is being played because he won't honor the flag because of what it represents and the racism in our country. So the flag is not always the symbol of national patriotism that we assume it to be. So uh, I'd be fine putting the flag up, but here's a reason why I would prefer not to. And the reason is I do not want to ever equate the American way with the gospel. The American way will not save you. The American way will not bring you what you're looking for. The American way and our political system and our government and our leaders and everything that our country represents will do nothing for you eternally. Only Christ will. Only the gospel will. Only the transforming power of Jesus Christ will deliver us from our deadly sin problem. The government's not going to do that, and politics aren't going to do that, and a deep love for our country's not going to do that. So I never want to subtly communicate an equation, an equality between what our country is and the gospel. I want to make a very clear distinction that uh, only Christ will save us. Added to that is the fact that uh, our country is not a God-fearing country anymore. We have laws that sanction infanticide. We have laws that have destroyed the family and homosexuality. We We have laws that protects the rights of transgendered individuals who will not submit to God's ordained gender for them. We have a country that's going to the bat to preserve these things and is forcing people to go into bathrooms where there could be someone of the same or the opposite sex dressed as someone of the same sex. This is what our administration and this is what our country and our governmental system is pushing for right now. And so in that sense, I don't want to equate Um, what our country may stand for with what the church in Christ stands for. Devotion to country and devotion to the gospel are not the same thing. We're devoted to the gospel. Now, we should be devoted to our country as well, but we're devoted to God and His purposes above anything in our country. So, as I said, I I would go either way. But if you want to know why maybe I would prefer not to, that would be the reason why. So, But if you want to put a flag up next week, Come talk to me, and we'll talk about it, okay? What about a Christian flag? Um, again, I would not be opposed to a Christian flag. I just think there's better symbols. I think the cross is a better symbol than a Christian flag. I think the Word of God, the Bible, if you look on the front of your bulletin, our symbol as a church is the cross and the Bible. I think those are the best symbols uh, to indicate uh, what we stand for and what we love. Question right here. Um, Brian, can you have Becky get the microphone? I guess I just have an unsolicited comment about that. I believe the Christian flag is you and me. Paul said we are living letters, living epistles, known and read by everyone. Good. And my heart breaks to see 
the church with their statistics in watching pornography as the same as the world. Mm. It breaks my heart to see the activities and the life and the licentiousness going on in the church as almost the same as the world. Yeah. We have, we're losing our savor, we're losing our salt, our yeah. light. Yeah. We are living books and letters Good. read by everyone. And the gospel is so powerful, lived out, it is so powerful, and the world isn't seeing it. Yeah. Our women dress the same as the world. <laughs> Sometimes I have to come to church and I have to sit where I won't be embarrassed with my husband to mm. sit. Mm. Uh, sometimes activities that we're involved in, we shy away from. Sometimes I can't partake in some of the things that we're partaking in as Christians. Yeah. And this is breaking my heart. Yeah. And I'm not holier than thou. I'm holy because God, I've been there, I've done it. Anything that I could ever lovingly point out to someone else I've been there and I was it sure and I say it from a heart of love please church wake up and smell the coffee yeah the Lord's coming back and he's coming back for a people that are unblemished right they're not sinless people but they're holy people yeah and the doctrine of holiness is falling on shallow shallow times yeah so I, that's just a word from an old lady. <laughs> <laughs> Great word. Amen to that. Any other follow-up questions? Susan. Um, just thinking back to Bethany's question earlier of how um, Saul... Well, Solomon, sorry, <laughs> asked for God's wisdom and then later in his life fell away and just wanted to, I was thinking back to your Ephesians um, um, preaching where we talked about appropriating the resources in Christ that we have. And so I was just thinking back to with Solomon, God was not withholding wisdom from him. Like it was just that, um, just that later in his life, Solomon didn't ask for it. And so I just wanted to clarify like that God doesn't hold back. Like if we are asking for it and... Um, so I don't know if you just wanted to touch on that 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 um, yeah appro appropriating our resources. Yeah, good good question. So yeah, we we have all the resources that we need to live the Christian life. Uh, God has not left us bankrupt. He's not He's not left us lacking uh, the capacity to uh, to live the life that He's called us to live. And so I mean I think of Second uh, Peter chapter one. Verse 3, which says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So Peter says there that it's through a knowledge of Jesus Christ that we have been given divine power, which then gives us everything we need for life and godliness. So you are lacking absolutely nothing to live the life that God has called you to live. You have every resource. And you're right, the book of Ephesians, that's the whole point of the book, especially the first three chapters. Uh, blessed be the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has granted to us every spiritual blessing 
in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. You've got it all. So we're lacking no resource. So if you have a Christian who's straying from the Lord like Solomon did, it's not because they're lacking any capacity or resources to live that life. It's because they've moved. God hasn't moved from them. They've moved. They've sought the things of the world. They've pursued you know, other pleasures. They found their joy outside of Christ and outside of a relationship with Him. And so, yeah, absolutely. I would say if you're here this morning and you're dry, if you feel like Solomon, like you've drifted, or there's been a slow, steady erosion in your life spiritually, if, if you feel like you're in a desert, um, God's not moved from you. You've moved from God. And maybe a good example of that would be Ephesians, um, Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus, where you remember Paul or, uh, Christ commends them for all the great things that they were doing, Revelation 2. You have great deeds, your toil, your perseverance. Um, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. You have perseverance. You've endured for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. All these great things happening in that church, they're doctrinally solid. They're, they're, they're enduring uh, trials and tribulations. They're, they're doing good works. And then he says in verse 4, but I have this against you that you've left your first love. You've left your first love. Your first love hasn't left you. You've left your first love. And so this is an indictment by Christ on the church at Ephesus for those who had kind of drifted away spiritually. They had, they had lost their love for Christ. They had given up some of their affections for Christ. It was just kind of stale, cold orthodoxy without a heart for Christ. And, and I love what he says in verse 5. How do you get back? You remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. You repent and you do the deeds you did at first. Three R's. Remember, repent, return. If you're spiritually dry, you remember, you repent, return. You remember what it was like to walk with the Lord in a season of just truly enjoying a relationship with Him. You repent of not being there, and you return. You do the deeds that you did back at first. What were those? You went to church. You fellowship with believers. You spent time in the Word. You prayed. You confessed sin. You enjoyed the means of grace that God has given you. So, absolutely, you have every resource that you need to live the Christian life. And if you're feeling dry or you're lacking that, um, just go back to the Lord. And if you need some help with that, uh, there's many people here who would love to just be an encouragement and a joy uh, to help you do that. So, good question. Let me do a couple more and then we'll wrap it up. What laws do we pick to follow? There are so many laws in the Bible. How do we as Christians uh, follow God's laws when there are so many about not working in the temple of the Lord or our bodies? How do we determine what laws to follow and who helps us decide those laws? It's a great question. Um, it's a great question because oftentimes people will go to the Old Testament and say, well, you shouldn't commit adultery because of the Ten Commandments. Um, say you shouldn't, but then they'll turn around and eat shrimp, right? They'll eat a lobster, or they'll wear polyester and cotton together. Did you know that Scripture prohibits that? You're not supposed to wear mixed fabrics. Now you can. I'm being facetious. And did you know that the Levitical law prevents the eating of shellfish? So how do we distinguish between thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not eat lobster? How do you make the distinguishing mark between those two? That's a great question. 
Uh, and this oftentimes comes up in the homosexuality argument. And the uh, proponents of homosexuality will say, look, it, you're just citing Leviticus 18.22 that you, sh- you, you shouldn't practice homosexual acts, but then you turn around and you do all the things that are prohibited in the same book. So how do we, how do we deal with that issue? How do we know what laws to choose and follow? Well, really, it's not that difficult. Let me show you. You first need to understand that there are different law codes in the Bible. Okay? Adam was under a different law code than Moses. Adam could eat shellfish, and Adam could wear mixed fabrics, but Moses couldn't. But Moses could eat any fruit he wanted, but Adam couldn't, right? There's different law codes. So the code that Adam was under was different than the law code of Noah, which was different than the law code of Abraham, which was different than the law code of Moses, which is, by the way, different than the law code that we're under today. There are different law codes, and every succeeding law code supersedes the previous one. So the law code of Noah superseded the law code of Adam, and the law code of Abraham superseded the law code of Noah, and the law code of of Moses superseded the law code of Abraham. So each subsequent law code supersedes the previous law code. So the first thing we need to understand is that there are different law codes, Second thing you need to understand is what law did Christ fulfill? uh, Christ fulfilled the law of Moses. So you have the law code of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses. Christ fulfilled in its entirety the law of Moses. Matthew 5.17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What law is he talking about there? He's talking about the Mosaic law. And then Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ fulfilled the law in its entirety. Now, here's what happens. Christians oftentimes will want to make distinctions, and they'll say, well, Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law, and he fulfilled the, the civil law, but the moral law is still in effect today. So that's why we should say you can't can't commit adultery because Exodus 20 says you shouldn't. That moral law part of the law is still in order today. So civil's been fulfilled, ceremonial's been fulfilled, but the moral law is still in effect today. That's nice, and that helps us understand why we can still eat bacon but not commit adultery. The problem is it's just not accurate. Christ fulfilled the entire law, including the moral law. So that distinction of civil, ceremonial, and moral is a little artificial. Scripture doesn't make that distinction. They're all interweaved together. There's civil laws, like what happens when your donkey falls in a hole, and there's ceremonial laws, like how you offer sacrifices, and then there's a moral law, like thou shalt not kill. Those are all interweaved together, so it's artificial somewhat to make the civil, ceremonial, and moral law distinction. The other uh, issue with this is that Christ fulfilled all of it, not just the first two. He fulfilled the whole law. So that's why um, you're not under the Mosaic law. Go eat your lobster and love it. Wear your polyester cotton blend. It's okay. In fact, go get a tattoo. Leviticus 1928 says, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. And some parents will say, look, the Bible says you can't get a tattoo. No, the Mosaic law says that. We're not under that anymore. Now, let me caveat that statement. (laughs) You need to seriously consider whether it's wise to get a tattoo. I'm not saying you should. 
You need to think about what it communicates. You need to think about whether it honors the Lord. You need to think about whether it's part of being a worldly Christian or a non. There's a whole lot of other factors you need to consider in getting a tattoo. And if you're a child under your parents' authority and they say no, then it's no. But what I'm saying is you can't use Leviticus 19.28 to say thou shalt not get a tattoo. That's an abuse of the law. And the reason for that is we're not under that law. So we can do anything we want. We can go commit adultery. We can go kill. We can go covet. No, 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 no. You're under law. You say, which law are you under? You're under the law of Christ. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 9.21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2, bear one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You're under law today. Not Adam's law, not Noah's law, not Abraham's law, not Moses' law. You're under the law of Christ. And because you're under the law of Christ, you're still under moral obligations. So you shouldn't commit adultery, not because Exodus 20 says you shouldn't, but because Matthew chapter 19 says you shouldn't. And you shouldn't practice homosexuality, not because Leviticus says you shouldn't, but because Romans 1 says you shouldn't, and 1 Corinthians 6 says you shouldn't, and 1 Timothy 1 says you shouldn't. So do you understand the difference? The law of, Christ, the law of Moses has been entirely fulfilled you're not under it. So go play basketball on Sunday, or on Saturday, rather. You're not under the Sabbath, but don't commit adultery because Romans prohibits it. And love your neighbor and do all the things that, that the New Testament requires of you because you're under that law, not the Mosaic law. Does that make sense? Don't, don't walk out of here saying, Todd said you should all get a tattoo today, okay? <laughs> you better make sure you understand that in context. All right. A um, couple, well, one more real quick, um, and then the follow-up. Uh, biblical Union versus State-Recognized Marriage. A financial radio program host with tongue-in-cheek recently said that people who are looking at retirement would earn more single. He said, not that I'm recommending people should divorce, but if you get divorced at age 64, a single divorced person could earn more from Social Security than staying married. And then they get remarried at 70 through the state, they will not lose the additional amount. I've heard of people who will have a church wedding to be married before God, but not register this with the state if the couple stays together and then gets remarried through the church only, but has a divorce to the state, are they still married in the eyes of God? Yes, you're married. You need two things to make a marriage. You need a covenant and a consummation. You don't need a state to make a marriage. You need a covenant and a consummation. And the covenant is you standing before God and his witnesses saying, I will be a husband and wife to you. And if you make that covenant and you consummate that relationship, you are married whether the state says you are or not. Right? Adam and Eve. There was no state to sanction their marriage. You don't need the state to sanction your marriage uh, you are married in God's eyes if you make a covenant and you make a consummation. So the other thing I would say is, why the big, why the big push to get more money? Just honor the Lord with your marriage, stay married, and trust the Lord for your finances. Rather than playing games with the state and whether you're registered or not, 
just be a godly man and woman in your marriage and trust him to provide for, for your financial resources in older age. Okay? Last question I'm not going to answer, but here it is. Could you provide some biblical guidelines for considerations in the upcoming election? <laughs> I'm going to preach a whole message sometime in September on that issue. Okay, I don't want to just give you a half-hearted answer and um, just kind of shoot in the dark. I want to give you a message that I trust will be a help to you as you consider the upcoming election. And so I'm going to save that question for later. And because it's such an important question, I am going to attempt uh, to preach a message on some things that you need to consider in the upcoming election. So um, to be continued. We have about two minutes. Any questions you'd like to follow up with? Daniel. I just wanted to add with the law, because the law of Moses has been rescinded for us in Christ, it doesn't mean it is without use for us. Correct. There is still much that we can gain of knowledge of God, knowledge of ourselves, knowledge of God's covenant with his people Israel. There is still much profit to be gained from studying the law and examining the law and where it is in conformity with what we have revealed of the law of Christ in the New Testament of following the law. So we don't throw out the law of Moses. We don't throw out that part of the Old Testament that has been rescinded for us as Christians. We still study that. We still meditate upon that because it has much, much to teach us about God and about his workings in creation with man. Good caveat. First Timothy 1, 8 and 9, for we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing that the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. The law is good. So don't rip out your Old Testament, okay? You need to keep it in there. You need to read it. You need to study it. It is part of God's uh, revelation. Um, and we need to learn much about his character, his plans for the nation of Israel, uh, his purposes. So yeah, good, good, good qualification, Danny. Any last-minute ones? Lois? I would just like to comment on the marriage relationship, Social Security, that whole piece. Having arrived there as a couple, um, I think as believers, we need to be real careful not to open up ourselves to criticism by the world. And I think if, if a couple would divorce only to draw more Social Security, that that would be a point of, could be a point of real um, criticism and um, would damage one, a couple's testimony in the world. Yes. Um, and your comments about we were in a position where we were forced, basically, um, to draw Social Security early, and God always provided mm. for the needs that yeah, we had. That's right. Not all the wants, <laughs> but all the needs, yeah, and um, that's really encouraging yep. in our faith. Good. Excellent. Yeah, the Lord takes care of his people, and we can trust him for that. Well, I think we're just going to close our service. Um, instead of doing our last song, it's 11 o'clock, so... Uh, 
there are equipping classes today for all of our youth, children. Uh, there are no equipping classes today for adults because we had a question and answer time. So we're not going to do a question and answer on the question and answer. Uh, so just enjoy some fellowship today. If you're new today, we'd love to meet you, and we'd love to just enjoy uh, spending some time with you. Please introduce yourself to us today, um, and uh, we will see you next week. Let me close in prayer first. So Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we've been able to interact together today and just kind of have a family time where we've been able to ask questions and, and look at your word. Father, we praise you that your word is authoritative. We praise you that your word is sufficient. We praise you that your word is trustworthy. And the answers to all of life's questions are found in your word. Lord, drive us there. Let us find our hope in you. And God, if there are any this morning who are discouraged, who are struggling with the trials of life, would you encourage them through this morning in the ministry of the body and the ministry of your word to them. So Lord, we commit these things to you. We look forward to our fellowship again next Sunday. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's son and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.